Get ready to challenge conventional beliefs about what's possible in creating health, wealth, and happiness. You are listening to Playing on the Edge Radio with Megan Edge. This hit show is providing you with ways of sustaining radical and powerful changes in your life. It is time to open and expand your awareness, accelerate your well-being as Megan shares wisdom, teachings, and experience from a lifelong journey of the heart. Enact the power of radical change with ease and lift your desires to a new perspective. Now, here's Playing on the Edge Radio. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Playing on the Edge Radio. I'm your host, Megan Edge, and I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Dr. Pat. We have got a really important show today, Pat. Mm-hmm. And, and this has actually become part of a series uh, of a focus of mine that, I, that is really important to me and I find really fascinating and interesting, which is looking at death and dying from a perspective of healing and empowerment. And, and as you know, shortly after my father died two and a bit years ago, we did our first death and dying. And I shared what that experience was like. And, and I'm going to share a little bit more of that today. And then recently, just in January, we did part two yeah. of death and dying when another dear friend of mine passed away. Well, here we are today diving into yeah. part three. And this one is called On the Edge of Dying with Dignity. Yeah. Because once again, I've lost someone really close to me. And that process was so... Um, transformative, so important, and I learned so much from it, and was able to increase the knowledge that I had and the experience that I had from the previous two um, people in my life who has pa- who have passed. So I really wanted to be able to bring these experiences into this this third um, episode in this series and look at the concept of dying with dignity. Mm. And what does that mean? And what are the legalities around that? And what is the moral conversation about that and so I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you today and sharing some of our own personal experiences as well as what is available out there for people who are wishing to learn more about dying with dignity yeah and there's so much really to unpack with this today because you know a large part of it doesn't get talked about a lot not at a personal level and every time you do see something in a clip it's really short it's like a three-minute segment or interviewing somebody for a really really short time but it doesn't really get underneath what this world is like right yes yeah it's, it's so true and so much now of our medicine is in the hollowed house of hospitals and care facilities, which are, again, I mean, I've always said this, I'm all about building bridges between mainstream medicine and alternative medicines or spirituality and mainstream medicine, because they're so complementary. But what has happened is that death is no longer something that we see. It's not something that we have a lot of experience with. In fact, I consider myself very fortunate to now have sat by the bedside of three very dear people to me and been a witness to three very different versions of of dying and what that looks like um you know prior to that my only experience with seeing something die was putting a pet down yes yes and that's a different experience for sure and what what's also always struck me is that we're willing to euthanize our dear dearest little furry friends when they are in pain and when their quality of life is no longer mm-hmm. reasonable. And yet it has been such a fight and a struggle 
to be able to offer that same mercy and that same compassion to ourselves. Yeah. And I think you bring up a really good point. I mean, um, I had, like many people, you know, we've had to look at our animal friends and say, okay, you're way too much pain. You know, if you were out in the wild, this would already be over. And I discovered two things, and you're going to touch upon this today in great detail. Um, most of, you know, my animal friends that I've that I had to go through that process, you take them to the vent, you leave them there. Mm-hmm. But in the Pacific Northwest, they have a kinder, gentler approach. And when Travis's time came, it was they come to your home and, and in your living room. Oh, wow. And as I look back on that now, we're not talking about people, but I want to be very clear. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that I will probably never do that again. Mm. Um, it was one of the most painful things for me. And yet I do understand how it helped him. Mm-hmm. But there's something about what you're about to share today that is very hard to put in words because that stayed with me years and years and years. And yet we're talking about people today and dying with dignity. What does it even look like, especially 28 months of COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's another reason why we're doing this show now and why I think it is so timely. Death in and of itself is and what can be very traumatic for the mm-hmm. person who is in the process of dying, as well as for the people who are left behind, it doesn't have to be that traumatic, but certainly in the last two years with the, um, the choices and the policies that were put into place by governments, which is a very mm-hmm. kind way of my saying it, uh, the, the, the trauma around separation, around abandonment, around dying alone without family and friends around cannot be minimized in any way that is so huge and and interestingly statistically there is an increase right now in mortality around the globe uh, of of all causes but mainly from heart attack and stroke and this is across all countries uh, especially those who are heavily vaccinated and and these are facts these are statistics they've been put out by government sources you can find them Um, and, and so because of that, what we, what we know is that more people are, are simply dying. It's about how they're dying. It's about the quality of the experience that they have and that their loved ones have, which makes the difference between a really traumatic experience and one that at least offers some peace or some um, acknowledgement of this experience. Because I mean, death is, it's a part of life. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always said there's no real point in being afraid of death because it's mm-hmm. not like you have an option. You know, you come <laughs> into this world and you're going to die. You're going right. to die someday of something. But instead of feeling like you don't have a say in what that looks like or how that unfolds, what if you did have a say in that? You know, and that's what dying with dignity is all about. It's about educating people about what their rights are when it comes to medical treatments, things like being able to say no, or asking for a second or third opinion, or asking for an alternative therapy or healing. And it's also about recognizing and understanding what the laws currently are 
in your country or in your province or your state around you making the decision that your quality of life is no longer worth the pain and the effort of staying alive. And so how then can you take that experience into your own hands and bring your family into it and bring your friends into it? And yes, it's still incredibly painful. I can speak from recent personal experience on that. And yet it's a very different kind of way of being mm-hmm. in that process of, of death. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're talking about death in the cultures that you and I know. So I want to be very clear about that for mm-hmm. this particular show, because we know that there are other cultures. I know it because I'm part of a couple of them. So I just want to say that it's viewed very differently in different places and different things. For example, any country or any spiritual philosophy that has any conversation about reincarnation has a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about North America for a moment, correct? That's I just correct. want to be clear for those people that are that are thinking we're generalizing. We're not. We're not. Mm-hmm. In the United States of America, you had to be living under a rock if you didn't hear the word Jack of Workian, right? I mean, I mean, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, I, I mean, this, this that's a name. That's mm-hmm. a person. And especially if you were on the East Coast, I mean, he, he was in, I think, Michigan. But today's conversation, you're going to walk us through three, I think, three different experiences to consider, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I am going to take you through the three recent experiences that yeah. I have had uh, and what those each were like yep. and what I took from those experiences, what yeah. I learned from those experiences and what I want to share with others and impart to others. Yeah. But to put it into context, let's start with a little bit of a history lesson. Yes, let's do it. Okay, so this is from the Canadian perspective. And as I was saying to Pat just before the show, I, I didn't get to um, the history in the United States specifically. I, I, I can handle a little bit of that. Okay. <laughs> I, I, all I have to do is say Kevorkian and Frankie and Grace, uh, the, the hit show. But yeah, yes. and, the, and the Hemlock Society. That's yeah, another oh, one that's, that's part of right. the U.S. experience. Okay, right. so, so here in Canada in 1892, the Criminal Code of Canada was put into place. And at that time, suicide and assisted suicide were considered to be a criminal offense. So if you were to try to um, to kill yourself and you didn't succeed, you could be charged with self attempted self murder was how it was how it was portrayed. And if you were assisting somebody in this process, you would then become an accessory to murder. Yep. It wasn't until 1972 here in Canada that suicide as an act was decriminalized. So if you chose to end your life and and as I'm going through this, I want to be very clear about something. Anybody who contemplates suicide is in an enormous amount of pain. There's no this question. is not something that is easy for anybody to come to the decision to do. There's either an enormous amount of mental anguish and mental pain or physical anguish and physical pain. Right. So and, none and of this is just, light. Yeah. And let me just comment on this. In certain cultures, in other cultures, taking your life in an honorable way is inherently part of that culture. So we're not talking about those cultures today, you know, or nor are we having judgment around them. You know, what the, my friends in Japan, what they believe that is part of their culture, that is part of their experience. But here in these two continents that we're looking at here, there's a perspective on what we're talking about. 
That's right. And and it's right now I'm just going quickly through some dates. Yeah, it's some it. really important legal things that happened here in Canada to allow us to even have this conversation, really. Yeah. But at some point in our conversation, I do want to touch upon mm-hmm. why why has suicide been seen as a sin or something that should be made illegal? Because it's that's an important part of the conversation that the sacredness and sanctity of life and what it is that is trying to be protected um, in discouraging this as an option for people who feel like it is at that point their only their only option. Okay, um, <clears throat> so you're right. So 1972 suicide was decriminalized in Canada. And in 1915, but then in 1915, physician-assisted suicide was decriminalized in Canada, okay, unanimously. So the court, the Supreme Court of Canada said, across the board, physician-assisted death is now decriminalized. However, if anyone was found guilty of counseling another to take their life or aiding a suicide, they were liable for up to 14 years in prison. So they could be charged, but the person involved could not be charged with anything at this point. So this is from 1972, where it becomes decriminalized, to 1915, where now physician-assisted death is is being um, is being rolled out. On the on the pre- before this, we had two incidents in Canada that were really really important and that garnered worldwide attention. And one of them was the case of Susan Rodriguez. And anyone in Canada who was alive in 1993 um, and conscious <laughs> would remember this. So she was a young woman who had MS and was looking to have a medically assisted death prior to dying of the disease. But she'd seen what had happened with MS and she knew what was coming towards her. And it was something that she was trying to avoid. And this went from the BC court all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada fighting for this. And she has a very famous quote um, that was went right around the world. What she said is, if I cannot give consent to my own death, who owns my life? Mm-hmm. And really, it came down to a question of choice, freedom of choice. You know, if we have freedom of choice in every other medical thing that can happen to us, ideally, why can't we have freedom of choice when it comes to, when it comes to this, when it comes to death? Why can't we know when our bodies are done and and have a really beautiful, peaceful way to to exit um, this world? So it was struck down by the Supreme Court of Canada five to one. She did not win that that case. She did take her own life in 1994 with an unknown physician who's never been identified. There was a small court case trying to, or investigative case trying to figure out who that person was and how it had happened, but it was fairly quickly dropped. You know, five, five, or sorry, not five to one, five to four was the turnover at the Supreme Court of Canada. So it was, it was very, very close. Yeah. Then in 1993, we also had the case of Robert Latimer. Now this is, this is slightly different, but it's still part of the conversation. So Robert Latimer was a father of three, is a father of well, now, I guess he was a father of four, father of two. Anyways, um, his daughter was born with complications during the birth, which led to lack of oxygen to the brain, which led to seizures, which led to it's, I mean, if you read the story and, and actually for anybody who's interested, I have posted all of the links to the research that I did on this subject beyond my own experience on my Facebook page. So you can go there and you can click on all the articles, you can see all the laws, you can see everything that I'm talking about here. I will give you this warning when you read the Robert Latimer one, just know it's going to be a very painful read. Mm. Because they do talk quite a lot about what his daughter was going through and what brought him to this place of 
not having, not feeling like he had any other recourse but to take her life in a mercy killing. And then he immediately gave himself up to the police and said, this is what has happened. And he was sentenced to jail for murder and he was there for 10 years with no parole. Um, it's not black and white, that one. But so, so these, these two events were happening at about the same time, the Susan Rodriguez and the Robert Latimer. It wasn't until 2016, and this, so this is quite recent, that the Medical Assisted in Dying Act was brought into Canada as, as option. And so what that allows, and I'm going to just read it right here for us, um, it allows, where is it? Sorry, I had it up and then I went to other. Okay, so a competent adult person who clearly consents to the termination of life and has a grievous and irremediable medical condition, including illness, disease, or disability, that causes enduring suffering that is intolerable to the individual in the circumstances of his or her condition. So these were the conditions under which a person could request to have um, medical assistance in, in dying. And then there's, there, were other, there are other things put into place that um, make it very clear and very concise who can and who cannot qualify for this particular process, this particular procedure. And also for the doctors who may be choosing to participate in this, what their rights are under the law as well. So it's, it's a fairly um, clear and concise act that allows people um, at the very end of life of illness to make a decision while they still can, while they are still of sound mind and body to go through this process. In 2020, that was amended. And instead of it being a, a, a foreseeable re- or a foreseeable near death, like so something that you only have two or three months left to live, that has now been changed to not it does not have to be imminent. Death does not have to be imminent. You can be living with a condition and an illness that is not terminal in and of itself, but is creating such a lack of quality of life that it can be determined that this is an option for you. And that's that's where we are now. And then looking at 2023, MAID is going to open up to those who have severe mental illness and for whom, again, quality of life cannot be improved upon. And that's, that's where MAID is headed for 1993. So that history lesson puts us into the perspective, at least for where we are at legally, for what is available to people who are in extreme pain, in extreme physical pain, and whose quality of life is not ever going to improve. This is an option for them. And this is what I went through recently with a really dear friend of mine. Do you want to add anything to what, to that? breakdown of no I think that you know this is important to really explain to people why this is important I mean this gets so confused in so many ways at so many levels for people and there have been so many cases and arguments that have been made about certain things but you know it's interesting we have the law that intervenes and I think one of the more controversial um, legal battles that we've had at least in the United States is uh, capital punishment Mm. And, you know, I, I was reading an article about this not too long ago. And, you know, those people that understand the Ten Commandments, they have them. They know them. But now you've got two, three, four other people. They come out and they go, and now they're going to explain the commandments to you. Mm-hmm. And they're going to say, yeah, you can't, like, kill another person. But it's okay, because let me explain this to you, that the government can do it. And I'm like, I just don't think things were created and meant 
for people to put the spin doctor on them. <laughs> and yeah, but it does confuse people. And yeah. and yet the one thing we know is what you said before, and that is my friend used to joke about this. I mean, honestly, you don't want this guy at your baby's birth because out of his mouth he's gonna say, Well, congratulations on your birth. And little Jody, for you, you're beginning your death journey. I mean, honestly, <laughs> but this is a man that has a good feeling about it. Otherwise you mm -hmm. can't joke like that. But this is not a joking matter when we're talking about the fact that we can't make a decision. Exactly. And, and I, something that just popped into my mind when you said that, you know, welcome to your death journey. That sounds rather morbid from our perspective here in North America in the way that generally death is viewed and received yep. and not talked about. However, again, what if we could have different conversations with yep. our friends and our loved ones? What if we, so one of the things that we used to have here in Victoria, and maybe it'll come back up again, is something called a death cafe. And a death cafe is where people meet in a public place, in a cafe, and then they talk about what is their experience of death? You know, who in their lives have died? How do they feel about death? What are they afraid of? What do they believe comes next? You know, where is their faith and their belief in the continuation of their soul, perhaps? And then also looking at what needs to be in place at the legal level to ensure that your wishes are adhered to, especially once you get into a hospital. Because, and this is one of the links that I posted on my Facebook page, there's a really great, um, it's a, a TED, not a TED talk, but a TED blog, I guess, um, by a physician down in the United States. And it, it's entitled, What Doctors Don't Learn About Death and Dying. And he's, and he's sharing what his experience was like as an intern and how little, hmm. little space was given to how you help someone who is about to die what you do for the people who are around them, what kind of conversations that you can have with them, what options are available. It's a fascinating read. I highly encourage anyone who's interested to learn more about it, hop over to yeah. my Facebook page, Megan Edge, and you'll see it. Um, you'll see the yeah. link there. Really, really fascinating. So if we could have different conversations, if our medical professionals were trained differently around death and dying, and where instead of it being the ultimate failure to lose a patient, and only heroic measures are used or things that we know are not going to help them, but we want to give them hope even when we know there is no hope. Wouldn't it be more dignified to be able to say, Mr. Johnson, your body is not going to come back from this. How can we make you comfortable? What do you need? Can I help yeah. you with what you might be afraid of? Yeah. You know? So up here in Canada, Dying with Dignity is actually an organization <clears throat> And they've put together a lot of resources to help people really get very clear. What am I willing to have happen to me? And what am I willing to not have happen to me? Should something happen to me? Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a point that gets made in this, and we could talk about this when we come back from break, but there's an interesting point that I remember from uh, the Kevorkian hearings. And um, he was he was uh, accused of and convicted of, I think, second degree murder. And when I, I remember that case, because it was against a man that had one of the most debilitating diseases that yet to this date, modern medicine has been able to help with, and that's ALS. Mm -hmm. And 
and you know, there's a point by which one one has to think about something really interesting, and that is if modern medicine did not intervene in the natural evolution of one's life, right? Mm -hmm. The body would take its own methodology to move forward. It would make decisions on its own, what it could heal and what it couldn't heal uh, and not be governed by a law or a hospital or a doctor, but it would take its natural course of things. And that is not included in any conversation whatsoever. No, it's not. It's not. And when we come back from break, I, I want to talk a little bit more about yeah. the fear of dying as I share some yeah. of my experiences have been with this recently. Yeah, boy, that is a big one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That is a big one. Uh, let's take a short break, everybody. Megan, you mentioned your Facebook, your website, but please make sure people know how to get there. Would you give that information out? Absolutely. On Facebook, you can find me at Megan Edge or Megan Edge Healing is my business page. LinkedIn, I'm at Megan Edge. Uh, YouTube, Megan Edge Healing. We've got loads and loads of videos, including every one of our radio shows is is there for resources. Uh, And then, of course, the website, which is MeganEdge.ca. And what we're not going to cover today, but I just got a ping message. Sorry, I was looking at my phone. You know, my my cell phone number is out now. And so I got a message. And it's a very important question, but we're not going to cover it in detail today, but perhaps maybe we can put it on the radar. Are you going to, Megan, thank you for the topic today. Thank you, Dr. P. Are you going to talk about gender differences when it comes to accepting, when it comes to acceptability of assisted death? Let's take a short break. When we come Uh back, Megan will have to think about another show on that. (laughs) That is very, very different in so many cultures and in so many ways and in so many aspects of what we're talking about. Megan, let's take a short break. We'll be right back with more. Have you heard about shifting the collective vibration and consciousness on the planet? Join me, Kimberly Barrett, on the Sharing Love and Light show every first and third Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern at TransformationTalkRadio.com to explore the depth of vibration and consciousness on our planet and learn how you can shine your love and light. To learn more, visit SharingLoveAndLightShow.com. Tune in to Knowledge Book Radio with host Marge Patasek the fourth Tuesday each month at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Through many experiences, Marge was led to the Knowledge Book, a gift to humanity in its transition to the golden age that provides truth and answers. She now shares information from the Knowledge Book with you monthly on TransformationTalkRadio.com on Knowledge Book Radio. For more information, visit USA.TheKnowledgeBook.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Pat. I'm the host of the Dr. Pat Show, and I am the creator of the Transformation Network, doing what we do in the world of positive radio, informed, educated, positive media. Independent radio hosts and independent networks have been the face of positive messaging over the past decade. So all of us here have decided we're going to put together an independent network that is going to enable people to bring their positive message of hope, inspiration, and conscious action to the forefront. Help us create a future of amazing, uplifting stories 
that can be told so we can tell our children and they can tell their children of what Hope and Conscious Action is all about. I want to thank you all for tuning us in, turning us on on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Sometimes being human has its challenges. Our physical health falters, our spirits sag, our dreams don't immediately come to fruition. Welcome to the power of Maximum Medicine Radio. Join me, Doc Martin, in conversations that will blow your mind about healing. In our hit show, Doc Martin addresses the scientific with bridging to the mystical approaches to give you a new narrative about Maximum Medicine. In this live call-in show, we will journey into the extraordinary genius of the human body and talk about other beliefs that impact being your multidimensional self. We seek the seen and the unseen and explore the earthbound and the otherworldly, all with the purpose of calling forth the maximum you. To learn more about Doc Martin and Maximum Medicine, visit www.SharonMartinMD.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome yeah. back. Pat and I were chatting during the break, as we yeah. often do, as we always do, yeah. <laughs> carrying on the conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and something that we wanted to bring to your attention again is to have just a brief conversation about, let's talk about Dr. Kevorkian uh, and some of the things that were happening in the U.S. at that time, because it is a really important part of the conversation. And, and as much as there's a lot of controversy about it and about him and what mm-hmm. he was doing, he was also bringing an enormous amount of relief to, to a lot of people and was, was putting it into the forefront of people's minds to think about death and what it means to be ill and unwell, wasn't he? Yeah. And, and if you read more about it, um, he, according to what I read, and I would have to fact check myself again, but he never administered the shot or the thing. Right. He prepped everything and then the person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot you can read about it. But if you were part of this in the United States, there were, we were split on it. Mm-hmm. except for me when the ALS case came up right when and that was the one that he was uh second degree murder uh in and he served eight years of a 10 to 25 year prison sentence yeah right yeah um and I don't know if anybody knows anybody with ALS I do I lost a very dear friend of mine mm-hmm. um yeah, there is no cure, at least as far as I know now in the medical profession, I think they will tell you that. Uh, I think the word is optimistic. But we're talking about what do we really have the right to do with our own selves here? Yeah. Yeah. And as I was doing the research for this, and, and just also my, my background in religious studies, mm-hmm. I was looking at what, what cultures on the surface, what organized religions or what what is their stance on taking one's own life and it's it's quite Mm -hmm. interesting especially when you look at christianity i mean there's so many different subgroups of christianity so many different sects so many different churches and each of them takes a different piece of of the bible and there are a few groups that are tolerant of or compassionate towards there are some that are very vehemently against there's nothing in the Bible that says if a person takes their life, they're actually going to go to hell or heaven or God will not forgive them. Um, but it remains a very, a very controversial and I think a very personal thing, depending on what your religious views are. 
when you go around the major religions in the world, the majority of them, and I, and I do have a link as well on my Facebook page for where this information comes from, have an encouragement not to, at the very least, if they don't outright say you cannot take your own life. And the basis, it seems, for all of that is that if God gave you life, whatever God you're, you're praying to, your God gave you life, only your God is allowed to end that life. And that suffering is a part of the human experience. And that's not just a Christian ideology, that's in other religions as well. And so if you are suffering, it is a part of your life experience. You have to be in it. You should be in it. Or in some cases, there is a belief that it is a karmic debt that you're paying. And so you don't get a free card. You don't get a free pass out of that suffering. Right. But when you move into spirituality, it's a lot less dogmatic and spirituality is often lost a lot less dogmatic on many things and that's where you come more into a compassionate and empathetic understanding of what this must be like for this person to be going through this and quite honestly if you have ever been with a family or a friend who is in intense and incredible pain it is one of the most powerless feelings that you can possibly ever have and all you want to do is make it go away for them and you would be willing, and I speak from personal experience on this, yeah. to do anything that yeah. would ease their pain and their and their suffering. Yeah. And yeah. and that was where we ended up with my father. Um, mm. You can go back and watch the first of our death and dying episodes and, and learn more of the story there. But ultimately, he ended up in ICU and in an induced coma on a ventilator. And he was there for two weeks. And the one of the doctors had said, two weeks is the maximum. If, he's, if we can't get this under control, these infections in his lungs under control, by the end of two weeks, you will be faced with a decision. And, and he and my stepmother had discussed this before he went in for the, this process. And he had said to her, no heroic measures. If I cannot come back and live my life the way that I had always lived it, and my father was a very intelligent man, um, loved good debate, loved good argument. He was a journalist. He was publisher of the Gazette in Montreal. He was, he loved being engaged. If he couldn't do that, if he couldn't do his gardening and his fishing and be cognizant, he did not want to come back from this. Yeah. Right. And you know, it's so interesting because before this show, um, I read a very lengthy, very long article, one of many on the 10 commandments, because my original religious roots are in the Ten Commandments. I'm very familiar with them. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very familiar with how they were explained under that particular religion that I that I studied when I was younger. Uh, and I didn't know there were so many loopholes in it until I started <laughs> to read around it. And, you know, it just kind of doesn't make sense. I don't, you know, on the one hand, many will argue if you want to just look at the religious aspect of this, many will argue that in Catholicism, the Ten Commandments are clear that suicide is prohibited because it is not taking the life of another man. Um, and then you go through and you read the script. And I've, I've listened to debates on this. I mean, and the debates, the debates where uh, who is it? St. Augustine and, and just threw themselves into the fire. But no, no, that doesn't count. 
-hmm. That right there doesn't count that he did that because there's some other thing, right? Yeah. I wish we just wouldn't make this so complicated. I wish we could just think about the humanity and the dignity of things. Right. You know, right. if you saw my friend Leslie with ALS, yeah. you, you can't even describe it. And she could not get the relief she wanted. Mm. She couldn't get it here. Yeah. Um, but we're talking about how medicine now trumps the dignity of dying. Yes. I don't know another way to say it. That's and a I really good way of saying it. I, I don't know that that was the intention because we need this. We need medicine. I'm like you. I mean, I, I got better because I put everything that was available to me together. Mm -hmm. But where's the line get drawn? Well, it's interesting that you, that you asked that because when I was working with my father in the hospital, before he went into the ICU and went into the coma and, and afterwards, um, here in Canada, in a hospital, you're not allowed to have anything that is perfumed or fragrance, even flowers. Oh, uh-huh. I brought in my diffuser. I brought in my therapeutic medical grade right. oils. I brought in food that I made for him. Now, you, we can do that. We can bring in food here in, in Canada into the hospitals. Thank yeah, but, goodness, because the food is atrocious. Yeah. It, there's yeah. nothing nourishing about it. That's yeah. Peeve. I won't go down that rabbit hole right now. Yeah. I brought my tools that I know help into the hospital and not once did any nurse or any doctor or any physician or any specialist say, you can't have that here. In fact, I, what you're lucky. I know what kept happening is every time a nurse or a practitioner or anybody, the cleaners would come into his room, they'd stop at the door and go, oh, wow, it smells so good right. in here. What is that? Yeah. Oh, I feel so good when I'm in here. And what's interesting, what I observed, and now, now I've seen it twice in the hospital and then once with the home death that I just was at recently, the, the, the nurses and the doctors stayed longer in his room and gave him yeah. better care because they felt better being in that room with those medicines, those plant medicines. And in fact, with my father, I had his, his lung specialist come in this point, this point, he's in the ICU, he's in the coma. He's been on a ventilator for almost two weeks. It's not looking good. She comes in and I'm there massaging his feet and massaging his hands. I'm doing my, my intuitive energy massage, massage on, on him with my oils. I've got the diffuser there. And she says to me, oh, are you a medical practitioner? And I said, well, yes, of a sort. And she said, oh, did the family hire you? I said, no, I'm his daughter. <laughs> oh. But that is breakthrough. That, see, that <laughs> level of awareness to me, this was painful. I know you and I are really talking about this as, as, it, as if it weren't painful, but I remember this time for you. Mm -hmm. um, and wow. Yeah. We may never know the relief that you provided yeah. at a deep soul level. But yet we do know the relief. And I know some of the relief because when he was conscious, he was telling me, wow. saying to me, Megan, this needs to be in the hospitals. Mm -hmm. You and, mm -hmm. your, and your healers, you need to be coming into the hospitals and doing this mm -hmm. for people. Because what would happen yeah. when I would massage his feet and I'm using specific oils that are helping to open up the airway yeah. passages and all those other things. 
he says to me, I can breathe. Yeah. I, I relax when you come in and I'm not scared anymore. And I feel comforted and my breathing gets better. And he said, no matter what happens, please keep doing this. Please keep doing this. The day that we took him off life support, because now he had three major infections in his lungs, all of which he contracted in the ICU. The doctors yep. were completely aware that that's what was going to happen. Yep. My fight to get him into a room with a window so I could open the window and get fresh air in, the doctor refused. It went on and on. It's, it's really challenging. I wanted to say this to all those people who have ever had the experience of advocating for a loved one who's in the hospital, who can't speak or advocate for themselves. That is a hell of a job. And my, my heart goes out to you because it's, you're up against, you're up against an institution that has a set of protocols that they have to follow. And I get that there's not a lot of room for anything else. And there's certainly not a lot of room for a stubborn, obstinate friend or family member who's getting in their face and saying, yeah, but what about, yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't even bring in a scrubber. And let me tell you, a scrubber, you know, it's a $2,000 air filter I've got up in here. We have cleaned these rooms out and we have kept this space safe for people here. But we couldn't, we were like, we're going to bring the scrubber and you plug it in. Yep. And it, it's, it kill. honestly, it yes. kills everything in the air, but doesn't kill you. Yep. And you can feel the air, right? Yeah. It gets ionized. Um, and I just ozonated. wonder about that. I wonder, I understand the liability. I really do, because it isn't just what you and I are talking about. We've created a system of infrastructure Mm -hmm. that prevents good care with dignity Mm -hmm. to be impossible or close to impossible. Yeah. Um, Now, to be honest with you, uh, you know, we did figure out a way to smuggle that thing in, but good. (laughs) But I mean, it's not small. Yeah. But this is still the show about dying with dignity. Yeah. You know, whether you watch the episode of Grace and Frankie or you've seen what happens when your loved one cannot do that, people are acutely aware of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you're staring through a, a, a glass, uh, as my dear friend did with her dad, and that is it. You cannot have last words. You're staring through a glass. I can't imagine. Well, and this is where I feel so grateful mm-hmm. for the experiences that I've had in the last two years with mm-hmm. these three people passing away. My father was in September of 2019. He, he had what is called a, a adult respiratory. They told us it was adult respiratory distress syndrome, which is a basically a catch-all for we don't know what's happening to his lungs and his heart. And it's what anybody who has an upper respiratory uh, influenza virus will go into if they've got com- comorbidities, which he did, you know, whether that's age factor or health factors. So I know what that looks like, but I was able to stand next to him with my hand on his heart. My brother beside me holding his hand, my stepmother on the other side of him holding his other hand. And I felt his heart beating as we pulled him off of life support. And now here's what's really interesting, Pat, is that as they mm-hmm. took as they took out the ventilator and as they put as they pulled him off life support, they pumped his IV full of morphine. And they said to us, that's so that he's comfortable. Now I know a lot more now than I did then, 
Mm-hmm. I know a fair amount about morphine because I nearly died from a morphine overdose, not one that I was administered by myself. It happened in a hospital after a surgery. They gave me too much of it. Mm-hmm. They gave him that to help him die. Right? That was within their, their capacity, their uh, protocols, because there was no other option. He was going to die at this point. And so as, as a way of being compassionate and for us as well, so that we didn't have to spend the next four hours holding his hand, waiting for him to die. Right. With my friend in January, she was not ready to, I mean, my father wasn't ready to die either, but at least we had some lead up. She had a massive stroke or had a massive aortic aneurysm followed by a massive catastrophic stroke. It happened very suddenly she was in the middle of doing a working on one of her manuscripts. This is not a woman who was planning anything around um, death and dying. And the stroke was to the extent where she didn't have her faculties any longer. There was a DNR, which if you're not sure what that is, that says it's a do not resuscitate. Okay. But up in Canada, it's different. The medically assisted death is something that is planned because you have an existing disease or illness that will eventually be the cause of your death unless you get hit by a bus, I guess. But um, do not resuscitate is for things like an immediate experience, like a stroke, right? You can't plan for a stroke, even if you're in the, even if you're a candidate for it, you can't qualify for made. So you have do not resuscitate, which if you've not ever seen somebody die over a long period of time, it's, it's, um, it's hard to describe. Yeah. Yeah. And what I kept saying to the doctors was, okay, but you know, if she has a DNR, you know, she's prepared to die. Yeah. Why aren't you prepared to help her die? Yeah. Well, no, we can't. Yeah, exactly. So you're going to keep her alive so she can die. Yeah, exactly. And here's the thing. Dying is not romantic and it's not easy because we're as biological beings, we are biologically programmed to stay alive. You know, and if somebody has a fear of death, I was saying before the break, I wanted to talk about a fear of dying to be afraid to die is not an unusual human experience because we're not programmed to think about dying you know every cell in our body wants to live it's about the quality of the life that you're living right but having now seen these three deaths the third of which was a medically assisted death I'm not afraid I've never really been afraid of death Mm -hmm. I don't want to die in pain certainly not and I have no interest in dying anytime soon I've always said when I'm 100 in my sleep, in my bed, comfy and at home. Um, But death death itself, if you believe that there's something else, doesn't have to be a scary experience. And what I'm trying to illustrate here with these stories is that as difficult as it was and as painful as it was, and that feeling of powerlessness and the what ifs, you know, what if I'd known more from my father? Could I have helped? What if, what if, what if I'd stood up more? You know, that doesn't change that my ability to be there and witness and honor these experiences and honor these these friends and family members for what they were going through and do what I could within my tool basket of healing things to help them made a difference you know it meant that we weren't all just wailing at their bedside and gnashing our teeth and pulling out our hair which some cultures do that and, and that's great because that is a way of getting out some yep. emotion. <laughs> but for me, it was more of an empowering experience. And also being able to be with three people as they died. Yeah. I mean, 
we're, we're talking about some basic things that make great psychological sense from, from across the board, including mm-hmm. being able to have music that that patient relates to. Yes. Right? You know, not the music like you think the patient wants to hear, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, it, and it, it, look, even if it is heavy metal, if that's what that person listened to, and that was his or her go-to, yeah, there you go. Exactly. Right? I'm so glad that you brought that up, actually, because that's a piece that I had remembered. Yeah. yeah. For my father, I was bringing in music for him, and it was um, Coltrane was one of his favorite. Oh. The Beatles, I, he and I used to listen mm-hmm. to the Beatles when I was younger. And some of it I brought in more sort of um, rhythmic beat music that is meant to help heal cellular damage and things like that. And I had some of the music that I work with. And then I would bring in the music that I knew that he loved to listen to. And the same thing with my friend who had the DNR. It, she, it took her eight days to die, which when I've spoken to a few medical professionals, they've been like, what? And she was conscious throughout that time. Right, exactly. We were having conversations with her. Now, they weren't the normal conversations that we would have, but she knew who we were. She was asking for us by name. She was telling us that we loved her. Just before she passed away, she told me I was beautiful. Mm. Um, My daughters came in and, and were able to have some conversations with her. She was asking for water. And we started to play a whole bunch of music that I knew that she would like. And one of them was James Taylor. Um. And it's the song, all, all the people from, um, oh shoot, I wish I could remember. Anyways, it's one of his great songs. She started singing it with us. Mm. So there was myself, my two daughters and, and my friend Trish, and we're all singing this James Taylor song. And then she, she lapsed back into not really being entirely conscious. So um, yeah, yeah. The, mu- the music is, it, of course, there's all these things that we can do, even if a person is in a coma or is unconscious. That I've made it easy for my friends, right? Oh, and, good, yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, but you know, it's true. I, I, I mean, if you if you talk to Linda about something like this, she's like, I am not playing that Radiohead thing that that creeps on you like that. I don't care where what you do, but but it's true. I mean, yeah. What you're well, talking wanna... about mm-hmm. is dignity. In a heart to heart, soul to soul way. Yeah. Yes. And now, now my, my friend who passed away in January, mm-hmm. she, she didn't have a list of things that she was willing to have done to her or not have done to her. She didn't mm-hmm. have any of that written down anywhere. But because mm-hmm. I'd known her my whole life, I knew she wanted the window open. I knew she, that she wanted to have herbs. I brought, we brought in flowers in a way that we could kind of sneak them in like just a single flower and then put it in her hand. Of course you did. Of course I did. I brought in lavender and she loved lavender and I tucked it in her hand or we tucked sage underneath her head. We, we did quite a shamanic process with her and using the oils and anointing her and all of that. And when she did pass away and she passed away two minutes before I got there Mm. that last morning, Mm. I just felt like I had to get there really early and I got there at about 7am and apparently Mm -hmm. she passed at 6.55 or something like that. But I had done a whole ceremony with her the night before, and I had all my oils with me. And so knowing that she had just passed away, I was able to do some more mm-hmm. anointing, you know, to honor her, her body. The most recent one, my dear friend over on Maine Island, um, she chose made. And so I, ha- I got to have that experience. And when she told me she was going to do this, it, it, all, it all happened very quickly. And all of us, including her husband and dear friends, we all felt like the carpet had been pulled out from underneath us. Oh, wow. 
But she knew she had made up her mind that this is what she was going to do. She had been a nurse uh, and a very high level nurse her whole life. So she knew what was in store for her if she didn't do this. And she was, although not imminently facing death, she was in a lot of pain, more pain than any of us knew because she'd done a very good job of keeping it from us. She got to plan her death. She picked out the nightie she was going to wear. She had her makeup all done. She was in her room and, and, she, and she invited everybody over. So we were all there. It was very surreal. I, I won't say that it was like the best experience of my life. Yeah. Because it wasn't. It was right. really in a lot of ways, very awful and kind of macabre and yeah. weird and dirt, certainly out of any of our comfort zones or experiences. Yeah. But ultimately, she, she had asked me to be there and hold her hand while she died. And so I got to witness her whole preparation of this. Uh, she gave things away to people that were important to her to give them away. Um, you know, as much as we didn't want her to die, and as much as if we could have said or done anything differently, maybe we would have or could have, but it was her choice. And it was incredibly empowering as much as it was painful yeah. to hold that space for her. And to know that this is what she wanted. And she did go peacefully. They give you a really heavy duty sedative right off the bat. As soon as you've said yes to this. Um, I mean, once the pro process begins. Yep. So we knew yep. she wasn't in any pain. Yeah. And, and then we're left to pick up the pieces. And yeah. I mean, this, this is the final point I want to make is that no matter how it happens, those of us left living have pieces to pick up, you know? We have to pick up the pieces afterwards. But if we've been able to be witness to a really beautiful yeah. experience of that passing, I know that it's a different experience than if we couldn't get there, be there. It is. It is a time. very different experience. Having lost pretty much everybody close to me in a very sudden way. My mentor, my mom, both moms, dad, sister, my favorite uncle. Yeah. Um it is a very different experience. Megan, thank you for today. Again, please direct people with how they can find out more about you, but also you posted a number of really important things. So would you tell people how they can get a hold of those things? And thank yes. you so much for today. Yes, thank you too, Pat. Absolutely. Uh, yes, if you head over to Facebook and you look up Megan Edge on Facebook, I'm the Victoria Megan Edge. I think there's a few of us out there. Um, you, you'll find me and you'll find all the resources for this show in particular, plus all, all sorts of other neat things that I've been um, posting lately. You can also reach me through my website. I love getting emails. Emails one of the best ways to reach me. And I do respond to my emails. Uh, and that's meganedge.ca. And then, of course, you can find me on LinkedIn and on YouTube. Um, YouTube on Megan Edge Healing. And I have a, a list of things that I put together to help people start this journey of empowerment. And I'm going to post those on the yeah. Facebook feed as well. So people can yeah. see that. You've been listening to Playing on the Edge Radio with Megan Edge. Tune in each month on Transformation Talk Radio and the Dr. Pat Show Network, providing you with ways of sustaining radical and powerful changes in your life. If you've missed any part of this episode or want to find out more about Megan Edge, visit her website at meganedge.ca.